0: Good morning. Good morning. If you want to go ahead and prepare your Bibles for the passages we're reading, We're going to start in Matthew 18, starting verse 21, Matthew 18. There are two separate passages we'll be reading. Matthew 18 and 1st Samuel 24. Matthew 18, and 1 Samuel 24. I'm a pacer when I talk, so I'm going to try my best to contain it to this. <clears throat> my first question for you all, show of hands, have you ever heard of the phrase cancel culture? Raise it up if you, if you know it. Yeah, few of us know, few of us don't, and that's fine. The topic of today's lesson is how the world has that tension with our new home because the world creates anger and bitterness. And I'm showing you how the Lord forgives. So the two difference between anger and forgiveness. So that's that's the topic of it. So cancel culture, a brief description is basically whenever a group of people decide that somebody did something so wrong, They don't deserve to continue doing what they're doing. They cancel them. Whether it be a performer who messed up or said something that was unpopular and they boycott it. Or it could be an actor. It could be an author. But the reaction that the world has towards things like that is to cancel. It's to say that you wronged me in some way or you wronged somebody that I know. And therefore, you don't deserve to be loved, you don't deserve a second chance, you don't deserve forgiveness. We're kind of faced with a world that encourages you to be angry. It encourages you to show love by shaming other people to support another group. So cancel culture is huge and it is dangerous and it's everywhere right now. You might not experience it a ton at your school, but it's out there. It's the reaction that I love so-and-so, and and if you say anything bad against them, I'm not going to even attempt
1: to reconcile
0: with you or to work with you. I'm simply going to shame you in order to love someone else. They assume with the action of cancel culture, they assume people don't change. Let's say you messed up several years ago, said something you shouldn't have, or hurt somebody, and they carried that years to come, followed all through middle school and high school, and they still are angry at you, even though you've apologized, even though you worked at your attitude. But this idea of anger and bitterness that the world has subconsciously says people don't change. They deny that we have a Lord that works in our hearts, and in fact just says, you messed up You're wrong for that. In the other lessons, we talked about how much the world pushes that it's your destiny that you create, that it's your control, that it all rides on your performance. Therefore, when you fail, you are the wrong. And you can't change. You've already shown your identity through your actions. That's what the world thinks. And how, of course, would that lead anywhere else other than anger? When you mess up, there's so much anger towards other people because it feels right for them because forgiveness is not something the world promotes to us the world promotes a harsh and hypocritical way of dealing with its problems let me say that again the world promotes a harsh and hypocritical way of dealing with its problems it shames you for messing up as if they don't mess up themselves They're hypocritical by pointing at you and saying, You messed up. You don't deserve this. While they're trying to hide all their insecurities and their wrongdoings. Does that make sense? That tension between I'm dealing this in a harsh way by shame and by saying you cannot change and that you are your mistakes. But I'm all right. I'm the warrior that's fighting for justice. So that's the culture that we have in the world. And I want to show us today why Christians. simply cannot act that way an example a real world practical example is there was a uh, comedian who was asked to perform and host an award show back in 2019 and when that was publicly announced twitter outrage poured in because people were resurfacing tweets from 10 years ago that he said and he offended a group of people with his jokes as a professional comedian, that was just something that he kind of an aim of his was to be edgy. So he made these jokes 10 years ago and has actually publicly addressed them in the years to come after that. But then when it was announced that he was hosting, so much outrage of people saying, this is a bad person. Don't have him on the show. And the show gave him an ultimate and they said, you either apologize for your jokes that you did 10 years ago or you won't host for us. And he said, I already apologized. We already moved on. I admitted that that was an insensitive joke that I made. I recognized it. And he said, no, I'm not going to apologize again. Because what kind of apology is it if you go to someone and say, I am actually sorry. I messed up. Will you please forgive me? And they say, yes. But five years later, they bring it up again. Is that true forgiveness? Or are you going to live the rest of your life with a potential in the back of your head, the anxiety we talked about Tuesday, that they're still mad at me? True forgiveness doesn't hold on to things like that. Cancel culture says, you did wrong 10 years ago, you're probably not better. You messed up, you're probably going to mess up again. And therefore, we don't want anything to do with you. They deal with it in a harsh and hypocritical way, as if they haven't done anything wrong in their past. And the world does nothing but to promote that. So as Christians, we have a much, much different and higher calling of, of attitude to show towards others because of the way that we've been loved. And I want to show that in uh, our verse, our passage this morning. Can we please open up to Matthew 18? Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me. I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that he'd done. Then his master, after he had been called and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I have pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What I want to emphasize from that passage is our motivation for forgiveness stems first and foremost because we were forgiven. Our motivation for forgiving others comes from the, the, the reason that we were forgiven first. I've tried since February to really emphasize That apart from Christ, we do not have any boastful works. Apart from Christ, we deserve punishment. And it is not unjust of him to give us that punishment. But it is because the forgiveness of God that he showed to you, you personally, I'm not talking to a you generic. I'm talking to each one of you. That if you believe in Christ and he forgave you your sins, why would you not then show that forgiveness to others? What makes you better than the other people? Are you like this servant? You've been forgiven so much in your life, all the anger and the bitterness and the hatred and the jealousy and the lust and all this that you've had throughout your entire life and you've probably even committed this morning and the Lord still forgives you and yet you turn to your brother or your sister and you don't forgive them? As Christians, we are supposed to be filled with this love of wanting to love one another and show them the love that Christ gave to us. We forgive others because we were first forgiven. Same thing with the passions that we were loved. We love because we were loved first. That's where my motivation comes to loving you. It's because I don't deserve love, and yet God outpours it every day to me. Therefore, why am I withholding my love to you guys? Think about that. Think about the times that you haven't extended love or forgiveness towards someone who wronged you and think about why that was. Why we hold so much that bitterness in our heart and we didn't recognize that the Lord forgave us way more than anything we've had to forgive others. Should that not motivate us to want to show that? Especially to a non-believer who wrongs you, who says something, who mocks you, whatever it might be. You show grace and forgiveness to them, that's powerful. That shows that you have some other motivation that they don't possess. And that's true because we have Christ and He's our motivation for forgiving. The next passage we're reading, 1 Samuel 24. This is a little bit of a longer passage, but I believe the story is very, very helpful for this. So a little bit of context. David, in the Bible, kills Goliath, right? Saul loves that. Saul then loves David, brings him in, makes him the chief of the army. And David is great in that position. So great, in fact, that when people come back, the women are singing in the street, singing praises. And they say, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul right here hears that and just gets so angry and jealous that David, who's not the king, is getting so much more praise and adoration than he is. So as one naturally does when they're angry, they seek to kill him. a very extreme reaction he actually throws a spear at David. So this is the context behind this. David is fleeing from Saul because Saul is trying to kill him based on the anger and the bitterness and the jealousy that he possesses. Okay, that's the context leading to this passage. All right, chapter 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheep by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happens afterward that David's heart troubled him, saying he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also rose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm'? Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but in my hand shall not be against you. So, with that story, I love that story. David's fleeing for his life. Saul kind of finds it. Saul's resting in this cave. David's here. David has a perfect opportunity. In fact, he's encouraged to kill Saul. They go, Look, the Lord's given you this opportunity. Kill him. And what he does is he cuts off a piece of the robe. He's convicted. He shows mercy and forgiveness towards Saul and then tell Saul about it. I said, see, I cut this rope. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And therefore I'm telling you, I am not the man that you think I am. And what I want you to get from the story is this is a powerful forgiveness that he's shown. Someone's literally trying to kill him and he still showed forgiveness. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We forgive because you personally have been forgiven. And that should be your motivation. I'm going to close with a story. Raise your hand if you have ever heard of Louis Zamperini or the book Unbroken. Also the movie. I haven't seen the movie. Okay. Actually, more people than I thought. It is one of my favorite books I think I've ever read. It is extremely powerful. And so I want to describe. Unfortunately, I'm going to pull a classic youth director move and spoil a story. But let me describe the story to you. Louis Zamperini uh, was a runner, an extremely good runner. In fact, set the national high school record early on, and that record held for years and years. He was so good that he went to the Olympics. Right, so he was competing in the Olympics. An excellent runner. That was kind of who he was known as, Louis Zamperini, the fastest man. Then the war happened and he was drafted and he went into war. He then uh, was on a plane, plane crashed, and he was stranded on a boat, on a raft, like an inflatable raft with two other guys. There's three guys on this boat that are now stranded during the war. They have no idea what's happening. They stay on that raft for 47 days, 47 days. Rainwater and birds were the only thing that kept them alive. So they collected rainwater because the salty water was, was, I mean, deadly to them. So they're laying on this raft, unable to do anything, and they would literally, a bird would land on the raft, and they would wait and practice catching it. And then, of course, they don't have a fire, and they would just eat the bird raw because that's the only way they could literally survive. While this is happening, planes are coming down and shooting at them and poking holes in their raft. So now their raft is starting to sink a little bit. They're still stranded, no sign of life around them, except now, this is a true thing, Sharks come into the picture. So now three of them are stranded weeks on end in the middle of the ocean being shot at with just birds to eat and rainwater to collect, and now they have sharks swimming around them. They eventually float to shore, but one of the members died during that. So 47 days. They float 2,000 miles away from their plane crash site. They arrive on Japan, which is not the place they want to be during the war. And guess what happens? As you can guess... Japanese soldiers take them, throw them into a prisoner of war camp. Two years they spend at that POW camp. Louis Zamperini was beaten daily, mocked, stripped naked, and shamed. The, the kind of the chief guard at the time, was the, his nickname was Bird. Bird would go into psychotic fits of violence where he would, he would beat Louis within an inch of his life. And they would throw him back in there and then kind of starve him for a little while. Feed him just enough to keep him alive. Bring him back out, and then Bird would get angry about something and then just start beating Louis again. Two years of psychotic violence and verbal abuse that Louis suffered from not only Bird, but every camp guard there. Horrific two years of his life. The US pronounced him dead because they had no word from him for two years. So his, his wife back home assumed he was dead. So then after the war, Louis survived, was then rescued, thank God, brought back home, but not without just an absolute mountain of trauma. He was driven to alcoholism. He was driven to intense bits of rage. Uh, and uh, he almost divorced his wife several times just because of how unbelievably troubled he was. And how much his life had been messed up by the physical abuse that he received for two years. And he couldn't run anymore. So he was, a, he was a national champion and then went to the Olympics. Kind of his identity, right? And that was taken away. Why? Because he was beaten so badly that he no longer was had the ability to run. So now everything in his life was stripped away. He had no dignity left. It was beaten out of him. He's almost divorced because he's suffering under alcoholism and rage. He becomes obsessed with having to travel back to Tokyo to kill these people. He's like, now I'm free. They're probably in prison after the war. So my goal is to raise money to go to Tokyo and to kill these guards. That was his plan. He tried raising money, it didn't really work. His PTSD was so bad, get this. One night he was having a dream that he was in the middle of strangling Bird, that prison guard,
1: and was awoken
0: by a scream woke up he was strangling his pregnant wife in bed they had the baby he would also have fits around it that he couldn't control and it became unsafe and his wife separated for a time and it was so so very dangerous he had no interest in religion because he thought God neglected him but get this his wife eventually got him to come to a Billy Graham sermon he was preaching out in this tent Louis Showed up there kind of begrudgingly and just the more and more he listened to these sermons and the more and more he heard about the forgiveness that God gives and the peace that God gives from anxiety and worry and trauma. Louis was converted and he was fighting the sermon, fighting the sermon. Then eventually he said, I have to possess this. So he fell down, repented and became a believer that day. Eventually he raised enough money to be able to take a trip to Tokyo several years later. Take a trip to Tokyo to to meet and take vengeance on these guards. So he asked to see the guards, and of course the prison let them kind of all line up in front of him. He walked into the room. He recognized the men who had broken his body and his dignity, who had beaten him, almost caused him to kill his pregnant wife in bed. And he walked up to them, And he embraced one of them and says, I forgive you. He goes to the next one, says, I forgive you and gives him a hug. And he keeps going down the line. These men almost didn't even want him near because they could not accept his forgiveness. He then started preaching to these men, the forgiveness that he found in Christ. These men who every day wanted to make him feel like nothing. And in fact, beat and broke his bones he forgave them, he preached to them, and all but one, it's recorded, came to Christ. That powerful forgiveness of enduring so much suffering and then being converted and seeing that transforming grace works. And Louis had every right in our worldly opinion to go to that prison and kill or at least beat or humiliate or just yell at these guards. And we would all kind of be like, yes, finally, but he forgave them because he was forgiven much. He found peace in Christ and he knew it was killing these men to think about what they did. That is a powerful, powerful story. I urge you to still read the book. It's incredible. But I want you to leave with this. The world encourages you saying people don't change, saying that you shamed them and saying that we need to cancel them. But the Lord says, I change people. You were once lost, now you're found. You were dead in your sin and I made you alive. Grace truly does transform. And through that transformation, we are then given this urge to forgive and to show that to others. So I urge you to consider that the next time someone does something against you. Show them the forgiveness that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for your word in which we can read these powerful stories of forgiveness. Lord, I thank you so much for the salvation that we have in Christ and the forgiveness that you give to us even though we still sin against you, even willingly. Lord, I ask that you encourage these students to be slow to anger, but to be quick to forgive others because they have been forgiven much. And Lord, I ask that if someone here is not a believer, that they be convicted from this and want to turn to you because of the forgiveness that you offer. The world cannot offer this forgiveness to you. But we get it from you. Lord, thank you for loving us and forgiving us first so that we may show that love to others. Amen.